Anyway, all right, let's get started this morning. I don't know how far I'm going to get. I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks, so we'll just proceed. Kind of started something two weeks ago, and we were off last week because of the weather, but we'll just see what God has to teach us this morning. I do want to take a moment and just personally express my gratitude to Eric and Daniel, and Jason's not here, but uh, my, my congratulations. I'm real proud of these guys. Uh, they did a great job this weekend. Uh, our relationship in the dojo is now forever changed. It's a good thing. Um, and I just consider it a privilege to, to be able to have people that I worship with, uh, to have fellowship with them in other areas of life. Really, your best friends ought to be the people you worship with in church. And it's not like that in American churchianity. That's what's so wrong with the system, the organization, the structure. It doesn't allow for what the New Testament said uh, uh, reveals the local assembly to be. And so, uh, you know, I'm grateful for these guys. I'm grateful to have others like Matthew and Brother Gene and Graham and E.G. in there. Uh, and who cares if most of the students are from the church? I think that's great. And so I enjoy having every one of you. We, we enjoy fellowship together. And I don't feel like I'm preaching to strangers when I'm here and I don't have to worry about speaking the truth because it won't be uh, rejected in this body. So that makes a preacher's job easy. This morning when I was reflecting upon yesterday and how special it was, the guys did something real special for me at the end that I didn't expect. I was taken aback. We kind of have a theme verse uh, in our dojo and it reflects back on something David uh, praised God for in Psalm 144. He said, Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. David was a fighting man. He was forced to fight. And God gave him strength to uh, overcome a bear and a lion, to slay the giant, to fight off many enemies. He was a man that was faced with war. And that was one of the reasons he wasn't allowed to build the temple that passed to his son Solomon in times of peace. But David acknowledged that it was God who taught his hands to war and his fingers to fight. But it wasn't something David wanted to have to do. It wasn't something that he desired to be. He desired to be delivered from those things, ultimately. To be delivered from having to fight. Even though he praised God for the ability. And the things we did yesterday weren't because we want to have to do them and use them. We want to be delivered from a society, from an existence where those things are even necessary. And as I continued reading through the psalm, it's interesting that David says these things, but then he expresses his desire to be delivered from it. He looks to a time when there won't be conflict. Twice, he asked God to deliver him from the hand of strange children whose mouth speaks vanity and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That's what society was even in his day. David reigned for 40 years, 7 years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem, but the land was full of problems. His entire monarchy, his son rebelled against him. He desired to be delivered. If I think, if I wanted to sum up the American public, it could be summed up just like this. Strange people. We've been so blessed. We've been so sheltered because of these blessings from God that we're strange people now. 
Just ask anybody else around the world. Strange people whose mouth speaks vanity and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Always looking for a way to get around something, to deceive someone, to benefit ourselves instead of thinking about the benefit of others. That's the American public right there. Strange people. I don't care who we elected president. Strange people. Lies. Deceit. I want to be delivered from that. I'm looking to be delivered from it. I'm not looking to President Trump. I pray for him. I pray for his protection. I think God can use him. But he's not a savior. He can't deliver us from conflict. He can't deliver us from these idiots that we call countrymen. But there's coming a day when David looks forward to Christ's kingdom, to a time when there would be many things that he looked forward to that he didn't see in his kingdom. And it's funny that one of the things he looked forward to was a time, in verse 14, there'd be plenty of oxen, plenty of sheep. There would be no complaining in the streets. You see, in Christ's kingdom, there's no complaining in the streets. You know, all these people want to disrupt this inauguration ceremony on January 20th. I don't know what's going to happen. A lot of people want chaos and anarchy, and they see something like this as an excuse to get out and loot and riot and act like animals, complaining, complaining, complaining. Nothing's ever good enough. But we're looking forward to a time, as David did, when we don't have to fight and when there won't be complaining in the streets. You see, in Christ's kingdom, there won't be any complaining. There won't be protests. You won't be protesting, shouting and screaming, throwing rocks and saying horrible things and inciting riots. It ain't going to happen. And I look forward to that day. So that psalm is not about fighting. It's about thankfulness to be able to, but longing to be delivered from it. And I think that's what we're seeing a snapshot of, is that thing David prayed for. We see a snapshot of it here in Revelation 14. So as we think about that turnover there, uh, we basically got into verse, first verse, what I call the victory campaign in this parenthetical overview of the great war between two wonders in heaven that John saw. The dragon, which is Satan, and the woman, which represents Israel. Okay, the church has been raptured out. The dragon's focus of hatred goes to Israel. That age-old conflict, we've talked about all that. We talked about the heavenly campaign, the earthly campaign. And now we're looking at the victory campaign. And what we have here in chapter 14, I believe, are just four snapshots. When we think about war in human history, regardless of what war it is, there are images that immediately come to mind. Okay? If I think about the Revolutionary War in the United States, it didn't happen on just July 4th, 1776. Our independence was declared, but we had to fight for it. And it went up through into 1781. But what's an image that comes to mind when you think of the Revolutionary War? There's an instant image that comes to my mind. It's a very famous scene. Washington crossing the Delaware, right? What about the Civil War? Gettysburg, okay? Images come to mind, and I think that's human nature. That's what's happening here. If you want to know what Revelation 14 is, it's some snapshots. Snapshots. I kind of reworked the outline a little bit because I feel like it better communicates what's going on. The narrative isn't moving forward. We're being given snapshots. Of course, we're being given them 
ahead of time prophetically, not looking back like we do with man-made war, but these are snapshots that characterize the victory here. We have one snapshot. It's a snapshot of assembly in the first five verses. Then we get into a snapshot of judgment, a snapshot of rest, and then a snapshot of reaping. So I want you to think of these as snapshots. Okay? And this first one in the first five verses is one of assembly atop Mount Zion. I introduce that, and I want you to think of it because I believe this is the earthly Mount Zion. I don't believe this is some Mount Zion in heaven. This is a snapshot of victory on earth. And I want to kind of look at World War II because we've got some famous snapshots. If you think of World War II and you sum it all up, what image comes to your mind? I can think of one that's probably more famous than all the others. Iwo Jima. Okay? You guys have seen this? Now that was in the Japanese theater of war, but if we think of World War II and victory, we think of this photo. Okay? This photo was taken on February 23rd, 1945 on top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima. The U.S. Marines were attempting to establish a beachhead for the possible invasion of Japan or a place that could be an emergency landing strip for the bombers that would go and bomb Japan. It's very hard fought. This wasn't raised on the day of victory. They didn't fully conquer the island until in March. But on February 23rd, this flag was hoisted up by six Marines. And you probably didn't know this, but three of the Marines in this photograph were killed just a few days later in trying to take the island. But this is a snapshot that's worth a thousand words, right? We look at it and it reminds us of a whole lot of things concerning World War II. So when this is another picture that was taken around the same time of the entire Marine Company on top of Mount Suribachi. And what are they, what are they doing on top of that mountain? They're assembling. They've assembled on top of the mountain. You know, victory, when a flag is raised over something, it denotes victory. There's an assembly on top of a mountain. That's exactly what's happening here in Revelation 14. There's an assembly of the sealed 144,000 atop Mount Zion with their Messiah. Did you know that during the 1967 Six-Day War, the Israeli Defense Forces conquered the Temple Mount in Old Jerusalem, took it from the Jordanians, and for a brief period of time, the Israeli flag was hoisted atop the Temple Mount. The, the, the battalion hoisted that flag over top of the Dome of the Rock. And not long after that, they were ordered to take it down because they didn't want to cause... Uh, the, the government didn't want to invite additional conflict and stir up a whole big cup of trembling around the world. But the Israeli flag did fly atop. And I think the political correctness that ordered it taken down was foolish... And uh, we see that years later. But that hoisting that flag is a snapshot of victory. It's often used to summarize that six-day war. This is what this is here. It's a snapshot. I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion with 144,000. We know who they are from Revelation 7. Having His Father's name written in their foreheads. An assembly, a snapshot of assembly. I'm going to get into that in more detail, but in introducing it to, to, two weeks ago, it seems to be an appropriate place to address what has become a popular 
I believe, false doctrine even in Baptist circles here in America. It's traditionally more Protestant and Reformed, but it's crept into Baptist churches, and that's the false replacement theology doctrine. Now, I'm not here to say that people who believe this, what I think is nonsense, can't be saved or they're going to hell or something like that. There are saved people who believe all sorts of foolish stuff. Sometimes it's because of ignorance. Okay? Sometimes it's because it's the product of bad teaching or a lack of discipleship. Ignorance is not an excuse. But it can cause you to feel pity. Other times it's not ignorance, it's willful ignorance. It's a desire to make God into what we want Him to be. And we know that contradicts the Scriptures, but we willfully want to keep it that way. And sometimes it's just because of flat-out guile, deception, lies for our own benefit. But there are Christian people who believe all sorts of wrong things. Paul dealt with them in the New Testament. Judaizers. He even had a problem with some of Peter's behavior. And just because we speak against a false doctrine doesn't mean we're saying people that believe something are going to hell. Of course, they'd accuse us of that. But there are people who believe this that are wrong. Replacement theology, the idea that God's promises made to the people of Israel are spiritually applied to the church and that there is no longer a piece of land in the Middle East that means anything to God, that Jews are not... Uh, they have no promises to inherit and that they're an enemy of the gospel. This replacement theology is wrong. It's bad doctrine. And there may be people who preach boldly the gospel message on the streets that believe this. There may be teachers that teach sound things in other areas but teach this garbage. And I'm going to say you need to watch out for people like that. It's not that the doctrine sends one to hell but it's a gateway doctrine that leads to bad, bad, bad interpretation and understanding of Scriptures. And if your understanding and study of the Scriptures leads you to believe that the church has replaced Israel, then you can't be trusted to exegete John 11.35, Jesus wept. If you're a great, strong gospel preacher, but you teach replacement theology, I couldn't trust you to exegete Genesis 1.1. Who knows what you're going to say? Replacement theology is kind of like marijuana. There are people out here that say marijuana does nothing adverse to the body. That's foolishness. It's willful ignorance. Oh, marijuana won't have the effects upon you that heroin and crack and cocaine and meth and prescription medicines necessarily do. But the danger of marijuana is that it's a gateway to these other things. It lowers the defenses. Marijuana has toxins and things in it that do adversely affect your brain. There's a reason it's called dope. And the idea that it's completely harmless is foolishness. But marijuana, you know, you start with marijuana to the hardcore drug user is like pornography to the racist. I mean to the rapist, I'm sorry, the rapist. It's got to start somewhere. And people that get involved in smoking pot ultimately get involved in something worse. You get involved in believing this re uh, replacement theology and the scriptural interpretation principles behind it, before long there's no telling what you're going to be preaching. 
It's a dangerous gateway doctrine that leads to explaining away lots of scriptures and ultimately the gospel. Beware of replacement theology. Beware of those that preach it. Because if they can honestly preach the scriptures as if these things can't be understood in their common sense meaning, then it's dangerous where they'll go next. I wouldn't trust them to properly share with me what John 11.35 means. Jesus wept. Two words. The danger of this doctrine is it takes some obscure, uh, some plain scriptures, many, 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 many plain scriptures, and it filters them through some obscure scriptures. When common sense says we take plain sense scripture and things that are difficult to understand, we would interpret by filtering it through the plain. But the replacement theologian has it backwards. We need to be careful. Like many other false doctrines, replacement theology is guilty of cherry-picking the Scriptures. We can't be this when we study and preach. I've already talked about years ago, I brought a sword in here and I talked about how a sword has to be properly wielded. If it's improperly wielded, it could cause great damage to the one wielding it. It's the same thing with Scriptures. We have to be those that properly wield them, not improperly. And I talked about what that involved in specifics. Those messages are still up online. And when we look at Scriptures, we can't completely disregard their context. We can't completely disregard their literal meanings. We don't read a newspaper article like that. We don't read a magazine article like that. We don't read a Wikipedia article like that. We don't read any book like that. So why would we read the Bible like that? If the Bible is God speaking to man in a language he can understand. Beware of replacement theology. I think it's a good time to talk about that because we see the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel begin to take place with this assembly. Just like the assembly on Iwo Jima was the beginning of the victory for or the victory campaign for the Allies in the Pacific Theater. It symbolized the victory. Everything that took place thereafter was a means to victory. It's the same thing here. This is the beginning of that ultimate fulfillment of what Paul prayed for when he referred to the Israel of God. And Israel's been in the news with the UN resolution declaring their presence in the settlements illegal, uh, with the Obama administration's uh, efforts here at the end to undermine our biggest ally in the Middle East, the only uh, uh, democracy in the Middle East. I think it's worth stopping to consider uh, and refute this dangerous doctrine. The funny thing about people who peddle replacement theology is they teach that the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are spiritually appropriated to the church. But, all the curses made to Israel in the Old Testament still apply literally to Israel. Show me a replacement theologian who would tell us that the curses are actually spiritually applied to the church. No, only the blessings. But the curses are still for Israel. There's plenty of curses against Israel in the Old Testament. Didn't mean the promise was voided. It just prevented the enjoyment of the blessings of the promise. Didn't take the promise away. But there are two scriptures I want to look at this morning because if you get into a conversation with somebody who believes this nonsense, it's usually they just read a book and they're regurgitating. They can't really think for themselves. But there's two scriptures that 
inevitably they're going to point to. And everything else is going to be filtered through these Scriptures. And so I want to look and I want to talk about the Israel of God. Who is the Israel of God? Because I believe we see a snapshot of the Israel of God, the ultimate fulfillment right here in Revelation 14.1. Turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. This is one of the pet peeve, not peeve, but the pet Scriptures of the replacement... Theology loudmouth. Many of them are loudmouths on Facebook. I had one get on my Facebook page on Christmas morning just because I said pray for the peace of Jerusalem and yammering on and on. Don't know who he is. He's supposed to be a pastor. I'm thinking, what are you? Why are you on Facebook ranting and raving when you ought to be preparing for your sermon? Uh, and who are you? And everything you just said is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So I just deleted it. It's not worth a response. But he made reference to the Israel of God, but didn't cite any Scripture. It says here at the end of Galatians, now remember Galatians, Paul is laying out the plain, succinct, simple gospel. And he's doing it to rebuke something that had crept into the church. It was the effect of the Judaizers. These were Jewish people who professed Christ as Messiah, yet were claiming that to be saved you had to keep the Jewish law. They were even telling the Gentiles this. And Paul is rebuking that. That salvation is through a Jewish Messiah who kept the law. It's not through us keeping the law. And he rebuking these Judaizers, these false Jewish teachers. Okay? And then of course later Paul would go down to, uh, or Paul was uh, at the, in, in Jerusalem and this issue was dealt with at the Jerusalem council. That's the context. And so at the very end here of Galatians chapter 6, Paul says this in verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. So in other words, he lays out the gospel. In terms of Christ and salvation, circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but a new creature, a new heart. As many as walk according to this rule, what he's just said, what he's just laid out about the gospel, as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. The replacement theologian looks at this verse and says this is proof that the church has replaced Israel. Paul is calling the church the Israel of God. That's the argument. They imagine that this distinctive phrase refers to something other than Jewish. That instead of defining something Jewish, like the remnant Paul describes in Romans 9-11, through that it's referring to a primarily Gentile church, a new Israel. Now there's a big problem with that. I can read that and don't see that whatsoever. Here's a problem with that. If that's the case, if that's true, it's a huge, large leap. And that interpretation ignores Paul's clear testimony elsewhere. Ignores what Paul's already said elsewhere. 
Read Romans 9 through 11. Paul deals with Paul deals with the conflict, the, the tension between Israel and the church. Now here's an interesting exercise. Go read Romans 9 through 11, and every time you see the word Israel, replace it with the word church in your mind. See what it, if it makes any sense. Go take the word Israel. If the church is the new Israel, the Israel of God, then go take the word Israel or church and substitute it. Mark out Israel in Romans 9 through 11, every time Paul says it, and write the word church. And then see if that makes any sense. It makes no sense. This interpretation also ignores the syntax of the verse, the grammar. There's one little word here in Greek. Right before the word upon, it's called and. In Greek, it's the word chi. And it denotes also. That word right there in the original language proves that the Israel of God is something different than as many as those that walk according to this rule. Something different. You can't argue otherwise. It's just like Paul says right before that, as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy. Peace and mercy. Would we say that peace equals mercy? Well, why would we say that as many as walk equals the Israel of God? Peace doesn't equal mercy. Peace is freedom from conflict. Mercy is not getting something we deserve. How does peace equal mercy? It doesn't. Peace and also mercy. Peace and mercy be upon who? As many as walk according to the gospel and also upon the Israel of God. We've got a preposition that's repeated twice here. There's no way that Israel of God linguistically is an, a positive restating what Paul has just said about the church. It ignores the syntax. One word, one little word in Greek undoes the entire interpretation. What is the rule that Paul pronounces blessing? It's the gospel message. It's Messiah. Their trust is in Messiah, not in the law. As many as walk according to this rule. As many who? As many Gentiles as walk according to this rule. Peace and mercy and upon it the Israel of God. As many Jews as walk according to this rule. The rule is Messiah. The them in verse 16 is the Gentiles in the church. The Israel of God is the remnant Jews within the church. This is not saying that the church has replaced Israel. That's absolutely ludicrous. Again, if people teach that, they can't be trusted to interpret Jesus wept. John 11.35 or Genesis 1.1 or the end of Paul's epistles where he says, uh, grace be on you. They can't even, I wouldn't even interpret, trust them to interpret that if this is the conclusion they come to. To interpret the passage this way that the Israel of God is the church is to ignore Paul's whole argument in the book of Galatians. He was rebuking Judaizers, Jews that were false teachers claiming that you had to keep the law to be saved. He was rebuking them. So he's obviously contrasting true Jewish believers who trusted in Messiah with the false ones who claimed salvation was of works. 
So the Israel of God are Jews that are not like the Jewish Judaizers that he's been arguing against the entire book. It's not the church. Israel of God is in contrast to who Paul is warning the Gentile Christians about in the book of Galatians. Jews that were coming, claiming to believe in Jesus, but teaching that you had to observe the law. Not the Israel of God. Not the true remnant body within the church. I dealt with one of these Judaizers in Jerusalem while Ricky and I were preaching outside the, uh, the gate there on the northern side of the city. He came up and he had all his little tzitzis and his kippah and everything on and he came up and claimed to be a believer in Yeshua HaMashiach. We were excited at first, but then he went right into this, you know, asking me, do we keep the Sabbath? Do we keep the dietary laws? And it became very clear that he was a Judaizer. And we rebuked him the same way Paul rebuked him. And he got upset. And then some Orthodox guys came up, kind of like the Pharisees. And then before we knew it, the Judaizer and the Pharisees were joining hands and attacking us, and they went off walking down the street fellowshipping with one another. Birds of a feather, birds of a feather flock together. So we, they're still around, and that's who Paul was preaching. This man did not represent the Israel of God. He wasn't a Jewish part of a genuine church of born-again, saved believers, Jew and Gentile, that trust in Messiah for their salvation. What Paul is saying here in Galatians 6 is peace and mercy be upon those Gentiles who trust in Messiah. And peace and mercy be upon those Jews who aren't teaching the garbage that the Judaizers were and who stand by what was decided already in Acts 15. That salvation is by grace and not of the law. That's the Israel of God. If you go back to Acts 15, Paul came down to Jerusalem it was 14 years, I believe, after. He talks about this in Galatians. He talked about going down to Jerusalem in chapter 2. 14 years later, he went down to Jerusalem after he got saved and he was there with Barnabas. And that's when they appeared before the leaders of the Jerusalem church and some of Jesus' disciples and declared what God had done among the Gentiles and how the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them. And as they were gathered to determine, you know, these people are going around teaching, we've got to keep the law, what should we do? Peter got up and spoke. And Peter declared what happened with Cornelius. And that we, our fathers weren't able to keep the law. Why are we going to put this burden on someone else? And then James, the half-brother of the Lord, stood up and, and rendered a decision. And in doing that, he reminded the people that God had made a promise that one day He would restore Israel after He had called out Gentiles according to to, uh, after he had called out a company of Gentiles to believe upon his name, that he would restore Israel. And so it was told that the Gentile Christians were to realize the decision was we need to understand that there are people that follow the law, Jewish people that are scattered all over the place that follow the law in every city, and in our witness we should not be a stumbling block to them. But that salvation is by grace and not by the law. Peter said that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
And that was decided. But these false teachings continued to be taught. And that's what Paul is rebuking. So the Israel of God is those Jewish followers of Messiah that didn't teach this garbage, that, but that went and lived by what was decided at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Peter said, um, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they, Jew and Gentile. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me, Simeon, or Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His name. And as to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this, that is, after the Gentiles are called out, I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof. That's from Amos. We've talked about that passage. So even here in this context, James has made clear that God will build again the tabernacle of David. He will fulfill the promises to Israel. But between now and then, He's going to call out Gentiles to be part of the church. And so Paul refers back to this council in Galatians chapter 2. So how can we ignore it in our interpretation of the Israel of God? It ignores, to say that the Israel of God is the Gentile church, ignores James's answer that I just read. It also ignores all the other uses of the word Israel in the rest of Scripture. Clear teaching in Romans 9-11. through Everything the prophet Jeremiah records in chapter 30 and 31 considering God's promises to Israel. It ignores the plain sense readings of any of the Old Testament covenants. It forces an allegory upon all the Old Testament promises and the prophets to Israel regarding Messiah's second coming, but it clings to a literal fulfillment of the prophecies related to His first coming. So typically, replacement theology would say, well, everything regarding Israel and Christ's second coming is spiritual, it's allegorical, it's, allegorical, it, it's a symbol, it's not literal, it's about the church. Blah, 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 blah. We're living in the millennium now. Some say Satan is bound now. I don't know what planet they're living on. But yet when it comes to Christ's first coming, oh, He fulfilled 48 literal details. Bethlehem was Bethlehem. Seed of David is seed of David. It's just ridiculous. And some people are so blind they can't even see the contradiction. That's a dangerous place to be. The word Israel or Israelite is used 79 times in the New Testament. All but two of those times, it is unequivocally referring to national, ethnic Israel. One of the two that might be questionable is this one right here in Galatians. So you got 79 times Israel or Israelite is in the New Testament. 77 out of 79, there's no question whatsoever it's referring to ethnic Jewish Israel. Descendants of Jacob. So you're going to tell me that we're going to interpret 77 
instances based upon two? Or would common sense interpret two based upon 77? If you had eyewitness testimony and you had 79 eyewitnesses to event, 77 of them agreed in their testimony and two told a different story. Would you believe the two over the 77? Well, most of the idiots in America do. Because every time the newspaper puts a fake news story up about President Trump, idiot people in the streets believe it when there's no evidence whatsoever. So we shouldn't be surprised that people do with the Scriptures what they do here in Galatians 6 because they do it every day with the news. But common sense tells us that if 77 people agree over the testimony of two others, the, the, what, what the 77 says is right. And what the other two say is interpreted in light of what the majority has said. In the New Testament, two instances of the word Israel that may or may be kind of confusing shouldn't determine what all the rest of them mean. It makes no sense. Like I said, go read Romans 9-11 through and substitute the word church for Israel. And you'll come up with lots of messed up doctrine. Foolish, stupid, ludicrous, dangerous. Watch out for people that teach this. They may be saved. God may be using them. They just may be ignorant. And like Apollos, when Priscilla and Aquila found him, they need to be instructed more perfectly in the things of God. And there are genuine believers out there that are just ignorant. But their heart is to know the truth. And they're open to hear the truth. But people like that fool who got on my Facebook page, I don't know whether he's saved or not. I'm not even going to make a judgment call there. That just lashed out with no Scripture, no tact whatsoever, showed he wasn't teachable. So that's why there wasn't even any point in responding. I don't even know who the guy is. That's a dangerous... He's a pastor. That's a dangerous thing. I hope the Lord opens His eyes. Sometimes youth produces that kind of reaction. And hope, you know people grow out of it. But it's a dangerous doctrine. Be careful. Be careful. I wouldn't trust somebody preaching that stuff to stand on a street corner and tell people the truth about John 11.35. I keep repeating that, but I mean it. Presumptuousness. Classic cherry-picking. Beware of those who cherry-pick the Scriptures. False teachers, cults, false religions do this all the time. We can't cherry-pick the Scriptures. We've got to interpret them based upon Scripture, the whole body. God gave us a whole body. It's not a book per se. It's a library of books. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And just like we heard Wednesday night on those tapes we're watching by John Arthur, the doctrine is important. People want to say today that we, doctrine divides us. We need to be united. Put aside doctrine. There are people who are saved that have some bad doctrine. But just because they're saved doesn't mean it's right and doesn't mean it's safe. Doesn't mean we can have fellowship. This contradicts what the New Testament tells us. The New Testament tells us that Scripture is profitable for doctrine. So how do we say doctrine is not important? Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy, until I come, make sure in the church you give attention to reading, reading the Scriptures, to exhortation, that means preaching, warning, and to doctrine. That means teaching doctrine. 
Are we reading the Scriptures in the church? Is the Word being preached? And is the Word being taught? That's what Paul told Timothy to give attention to in the church more than anything else. Not to offerings, not to programs, not to VBS, not to canned food drives, but to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And then Paul told Titus, who planted churches on Crete, that make sure to give attention to sound doctrine. Exhort according to sound doctrine. Then you get to 2 Timothy. Paul warns Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and shall turn away their their ears from the truth. When you set aside sound doctrine, before long you turn your ears away from the truth. It's dangerous. We must be those that teach sound doctrine. Even in areas that some would say aren't relevant. If it's in the Scriptures, it's relevant. Replacement theology is not sound doctrine. It's bad doctrine. And it is dangerous. And it's Catholic. And it leads to anti-Semitism. And it leads to all sorts of things ultimately compromising the Gospel. That's what Paul said in Galatians 1. That even if we or an angel from heaven come preaching something other than the Gospel of Messiah you have heard, let him be accursed. Our attitude toward false teachers ought not be, well, we need to be unified. Well, he does say some good things. It ought to be, let them be accursed if they won't repent. That's to follow the model of the Apostle Paul, but what the replacement theology people do here in Galatians 6 is just like the Catholics do in Matthew 16, 18. Thou art Peter, Petros, a stone, but upon this rock, Petra, rock, will build my church. Well, see, you know, uh, uh, Jesus is saying He's going to build His church upon Peter. Well, that ignores the syntax of the verse. And then they interpret the entire New Testament based upon that statement alone, to justify their Catholic hierarchy. Cherry-picking. The, Mormon, I mean, the Muslims do it with John 14, 28. Jesus is talking in His humanity and speaking about His Father who is greater than I. So instead of paying attention to all the clear Scriptures in the New Testament that tell us that Jesus was God, that He's equal to the Father and His deity, they point to this verse and interpret everything else that's super clear in light of that. Jesus said, I and my Father are one in the same Gospel. If you've seen Me, you've seen God the Father. Very clear. So when we consider that, we know when Jesus is talking to His disciples about His Father, He's speaking in His humanity to make a point. But they would say it's the opposite. That one doesn't mean one. And seeing me and seeing the Father doesn't really mean that because Jesus said my Father's greater than I. God manifests in the flesh. Well, that's been corrupted. That's been changed. It can't even be true. No evidence whatsoever. The Muslims do this with uh, John 14 where Jesus says, I'm going to send you another comforter. They claim that other comforter is Muhammad. But they don't read the next verse where it says even the Spirit of truth. I tried to share this with a guy from Syria in a mall on this last trip and it was like, he quoted this from, from the Gospel of John. John 14, about another comforter. See, there's the proof. Muhammad is a prophet. I said, friend, look at the very next verse. Even the Spirit of truth, not a prophet. And he just looked at me. He couldn't even comprehend that. 
Cherry picking. Regurgitation. The Mormons do it with John 10, verse 16. Jesus said, I have other sheep of another fold. They claim that that's Joseph Smith and the church he built over here in the Americas. When there's no archaeological evidence whatsoever for all these civilizations that supposedly existed and fought wars where millions of people were killed in upstate New York, but they've never found a shield or a spear or any archaeological artifacts to even suggest that that battle took place, you can go to a Civil War battlefield today and take a metal detector and find all kinds of stuff. They don't, want, they don't let you do it. But no relics of this battle that involved millions of people these great cities, where are the archaeology? It's not there. It's a myth. But in John 10, verse 16, Jesus says, Other sheep I have. He's talking about, you know, I, I know my sheep know me. They hear my voice. I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Well, that's the Mormons. That's a proof for all their doctrine. No. What Jesus is telling to Jewish sheep is that He has other sheep that will come to Him, Gentiles. And you'll be one in what? The church. It's also talking about subsequent generations beyond the generation of the disciples. I'm not talking about Mormons and Joseph Smith, but that's the proof text. The faith teachers, the Word of Faith people on TV... They like to cherry-pick Mark 16, 17 and 18 where Jesus following the Great Commission says, These signs shall follow them that believe. They interpret everything else in the New Testament based upon that. Drinking poisonous things, picking up serpents, healing the sick, all of these things. But they ignore the fact that at the end of Mark 16, Mark goes on to tell us, Jesus says these signs will follow. He lists them out. And then Mark tells us, These signs were done. It was done. It was done. They ignore that part. But cherry-pick that Scripture to interpret everything. Even the clear warnings that Paul gives about what should and shouldn't be done in the church. Cherry-picking. Homosexuals and the gay mafia, they love to pick Ezekiel 16, verse 49. We use that as an example of how to rightly wield the Word of God and how to improperly wield it. Back when I did that teaching years ago, I'm not even sure if some of you were here Back then, I did that teaching for our teams over in Ladakh. Eric may remember that. But in Ezekiel 16.49, that one little verse, it said, This is the sin of thy sister Sodom. Pride and idle hands were the sin of Sodom. So they say, see, Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't about homosexuality. They were prideful. They were idle. They, They had no gratitude. Of course, they forget to read the next verse that says, and they committed abomination before me. Abomination means sexual. It's a sexual connotation. And they ignore the fact that in Ezekiel chapter 16, which is rebuking Judah, that you find the following words mentioned over and over and over. Whoredoms, fornication, lewd, whore, harlot, lewdness, adulteries, abominations. The harlotry of Judah. They take that one little verse and say, see Sodom wasn't homosexual, even though you can read the account in the book of Genesis, read what Jude says, and it's pretty clear. Cherry-picking. They do the same thing with 1 Samuel 18.1. 1 Samuel 18.1, the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. See, David and Jonathan were homosexuals. Only a 
filthy pervert can read that scripture and say that that's teaching us that David and Jonathan had a sexual relationship. Only a wicked, dirty, vile pervert who's got nothing but sex on his mind because he's a pervert and because he probably couldn't get a date. Only someone like that could come up with an interpretation. The wicked gay mafia in this country has defiled even the human relationships or the bonds of friendship to where a man and a man can't have a genuine bond of friendship without somebody's claiming they're gay. Even in this latest Star Wars movie, there's two men in there that are friends and have shared a long history together. And one, one of them is blind and the other man is obviously protecting him or trying to protect him throughout the movie. And people look at that and say, see, we've got gay people. You know, Star Wars has ventured forth to, to include a gay couple. There has to be gay people in a whole universe full of planets. Well, that's not in there at all. That's just a friendship. But we've... This whole idea has defiled even human friendship to where you look at friendship and it's, oh, this must be gay. That's perversion, vile. And we want to claim that people who live like this and teach like this are Christians? No! There's no such thing as a homosexual Christian that identifies as a homosexual and that looks at a passage of Scripture like this showing genuine friendship and interprets it to be something vile and sexual. You don't have the Holy Spirit. Plain and simple. Cherry picking. The Catholics, the Muslims, the Mormons, the Word of Faith, the Sodomites, the homosexuals, they all do it. We can't be like that. Replacement theology cherry picks Scripture. We can't be like that. A lot of times I've seen this, I know I'm getting a little off topic, but I've seen cherry picking in other places that seems to be more innocent. But we've got to be careful with it even there. I remember coming up through seminary and relationships I had, and you know, God used some charismatic leaning believers in my life and people that showed kindness and hospitality. People I have no doubt were saved and I think some of their doctrine was reactionary. I think it wasn't, it was based upon cherry picking. I remember having a discussion with some folks one time about the concept or the idea of women pastors and what the New Testament has to say about that. And 1 Timothy chapter 2 is very clear. But they couldn't see that and kept going to these obscure scriptures to their point. One of them was Romans 16 7. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because, folks, if we're not careful, if we're not careful when we study the Scriptures, if we're not careful in terms of nourishing, nourishing our relationship with God, we can become just like this. Because the people that came up with this stuff were genuine believers, I, I, I believe. But they kept departing from what Paul was saying clearly about women teaching in the church and going, one of the examples they kept going to is Romans 16 verse 7. Paul is telling, giving his greetings to believers there in Rome. He says, Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. So this verse is read and there are some assumptions that are made. Number one, the assumption is made that of note among the apostles equals pastors of churches. 
Just because somebody's well-known by the apostles doesn't mean they're a pastor. And then the other assumption is that Andronicus and Junia equals women. Because Junia is a feminine name. That's the assumptions that were made. This was the argument. These must women preachers that the apostles recognized. It's okay. But this type of interpretation ignores the very clear things that Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Also, here's what's funny. We just looked at the genealogies of Jesus Christ, right? There's a, a person in Luke's genealogy that goes through Mary named Joanna, the son of... There's a man named Joanna. Well, in our culture, Joanna is a female name. That doesn't mean it's a female's name in Hebrew. So there's a Joanna that's clearly a man. So you're going to tell me that just because you think Junia or Andronicus is a woman's name, that it can't be a man's name in another culture? I spent a lot of time in India and Nepal, and I, I, I meet people and I meet men that have names that sound pretty femmy to me. Or women that have names. I, I've met people in... In, in uh, South Asian cultures, where well, you'll have the same name for a female that you have for a male. You have that in Bangladesh, right? Same name. Why do we interpret everything through our American eyes? We're so... Uh, 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 what's the word? <laughs> Eric ought to remember because I rebuked that team a couple years ago. Uh, 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 we're so just nearsighted with our culture as if everybody ought to immediately... Uh, ethnocentric is the word. I'm not going to say racist. Ethnocentrists are not racist necessarily. They just see everything through their own culture and expect everybody to understand it. really has nothing to do with the color of the skin. But we're so daggum ethnocentric when we read the Scriptures. It's funny, Paul says, Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. The word kinsmen there in the Greek is masculine. But this is type of foolishness. A verse like this used to justify women preachers. Dangerous. Turn to Colossians 4. Colossians 4, verse 14. Here's what Paul says. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So Paul is giving Luke as one of Paul's traveling companions. When you read the book of Acts, a lot of times Luke is writing in the first person, we, because he's traveling right there with Paul. He was with Paul on many of the journeys. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He wrote the gospel of Luke. He had a friend that was a Roman military person that he wrote to to prove that Jesus is who he said he was. It is taught that Luke was a Gentile. He's a Gentile. And the verse that's used is Colossians 4.14. So Colossians 4.14 is cherry-picked to prove that Luke was a Gentile. Why? Because the word Luke, Lukas, is a Greek name. And secondly, because he's a beloved physician. And it, if he's a physician, he must have been a Gentile. That's the reasoning. It assumes that Luke is a Gentile because of his name and his profession. There's a problem with this. Not a big deal. It isn't an issue of salvation, but it's an example of how something simple can be dangerous. 
Because if you interpret things like this here, what are you doing with John 3.16? It ignores the very clear testimony of Romans 3 verse 2. Paul said that the advantage of the Jew is that through him came the oracles of God. The Scriptures were written by Jews. If Luke was a Gentile, then that statement in Romans is not true. My friends, we're indebted to the Jewish people because they gave us the Scriptures. But the early church wanted to rip that foundation away and build up the Roman pontificate or papacy. And so they had to make a Gentile an author of the New Testament to get a foothold even in the Scriptures. Replacement theology is Catholic. What are we supposed to think? There were no physicians in Israel? It's not possible that a physician would have been a Jew? That's ridiculous because when the woman came to Jesus to be healed of the issue of blood and touched the hem of His garment, it's recorded that she had spent her life savings visiting physicians. There were plenty of physicians in the land of Israel. Lucas is a Greek name. He was Gentile. He wasn't Jewish. Now, Petros, Peter, is a Greek name. Uh, wake up. There's a long history of Jewish people using Gentile names to conceal their Jewish identity. That's not necessarily what Paul and Luke were doing, but it's been going on for centuries. We talk of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego their Jewish names? No, they were Babylonian Gentile names that were given them. That doesn't mean they were Gentile. It's funny because a little later in Colossians 4, after he's mentioned Luke, verse 10, he says, he mentions three people. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you have received commandments. Marcus here is the author of the Gospel of Mark. If he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice. So he mentions three people here. Aristarchus, Marcus, and Justice. All Greek names. Who are of the circumcision? Jews with Greek names. So here you have three Jewish people with Greek names. And in one of them, he gives the Hebrew and the Greek name. Jesus and Justice. And so to say that this proves Luke is a Gentile because he was a Greek name and a physician ignores what happens later in the verse. Dangerous, dangerous cherry picking. Can't be like that. Um, it's funny because one of my I like to listen to a talk show host, a radio talk radio host out of San Francisco. His name's uh, Michael Savage. He's very blunt. He needs to get saved, but he's Jewish, and. Uh, despises rabbinic Judaism. The type, a type of someone I could see having their eyes open once the church is taken out. But his name is not Michael Savage. It's Michael Weiner. He changed his name and still his Jewish identity. That's what people do. So um, it's funny when, when Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, if you go to Acts 21, they saw him in the temple. And they had seen him around town with a, Jew, with a Greek named Trophimus. And so when they saw him in the temple, 
they supposed that he had brought Trophimus, a Greek, into the temple. The Gentiles weren't allowed to go beyond the court of the Gentiles in that day. And so that was their excuse for arresting him. They accused him of bringing Greeks into the temple because they had seen him around town with this Trophimus, a Greek. And that was the basis of their reaction to arrest him. Well, it's funny because why would the Jews have been angry about him palling around town with this Trophimus if Luke was a Gentile? Because Luke was with him everywhere he went. Seems to me if they're going to make an accusation to justify arresting him, they would make it concerning the one that was with him everywhere he went if he was a Gentile. The fact that they made an issue about this Trophimus who was just with Paul from out of town proves in my eyes that Luke was not a Gentile. Then if you go read chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel where he describes what happens there with Zacharias in the temple, it reveals an intimate knowledge of the Jewish temple that a Gentile wouldn't have because a Gentile couldn't go in there. Luke was a Jew just like all the other authors of the New Testament. We are indebted to the Jewish people for the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and the Barit Chadashah, the New Covenant, the New Testament. I make that very clear when we share the Gospel with Israelis that this New Testament, this fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 is a Jewish book. And if you've been told otherwise, you've been lied to. Well, no wonder Jews believe that because Catholics have tried to peddle that nonsense forever. That the church, the Gentiles, has replaced the Jew. And therefore, the Crusades to uh, liberate Jerusalem involved persecutions against Jews and Bible believers who were not of the Roman church. That, out of that is where replacement theology was born. And it was a trait of a Catholic mother that was retained by some of the Reformed traditions. Martin Luther didn't believe that way. In fact, he believed that once the true Gospel was preached, that he would have the privilege of seeing droves of Jews that were in Europe at the time realize that Jesus was the Messiah. He made efforts to reach them. Had a heart for Jewish missions for a time. But they rejected the message. They rejected it. And it made him resentful. When people are harsh in their rejection of us when we share the Gospel, we've got to be careful we don't get a root of bitterness. And it's that bitterness that propelled Luther to write some of the things he wrote. But the difference between Luther and the Catholics is that if Luther had a, an encounter with a Jewish person open to the things of God, he would share with him the truth and lead him to faith and use him and provide for his needs and help. The Catholics would kill him. Just like the Muslims do. Muslims got most of their playbook from the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. What Luther wrote in his treatise of the Jews and their lies, I've read it, I don't really disagree with most of what he says. He's attacking Judaism and the Jewish rabbis who have deceived the Jewish people. You know, there's a couple statements he made in there about let, the, let their synagogues be burned down that are extreme. I wouldn't certainly advocate burning down someone's place of worship. I don't care what religion it is. We're not called to do those things as Christians. But the point that was being made is that what was being taught in those, these synagogues to the Jewish people was so dangerous 
that they're better off not having synagogues. It was extreme, but his reasoning was sound. Rabbinic Judaism is dangerous and it's, it's, it's uh, destructive and it's a lie. And it's deceived. The rabbis have deceived the people. Notwithstanding, God has a plan and purpose for Israel that cannot be overthrown. Beware of this type of cherry picking, whether it's regarding Israel and the church here in Galatians 6, or whether it's the type of cherry picking that would justify women pastors and, and uh, sign gifts and, and uh, take away the Jewish uh, identity of the Scriptures. Those are dangerous too because they reflect a mode of approaching the Scriptures. And if we approach them in these seemingly insignificant places with that type of interpretation, God forbid what's born eventually when we approach those serious, all Scripture is serious, but when we approach those core doctrinal statements in Scripture, sooner or later, false doctrine leads to a rejection of the truth. We've got to be careful. Peter himself warns about people doing this with Paul's writings. Warns about people cherry-picking Paul's writings. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 16. I'll read verse 15, kind of goes with this. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking of those things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other Scriptures, unto their own destruction. That word rest there is what I'm talking about when I say cherry-picking. Scriptures that are hard to be understood, those that are ignorant, those that are unstable, they rest them, they cherry-pick them, like they do other Scriptures unto what? Their own destruction. In my opinion... Replacement theology is an example of this very thing. What I showed you with some of these other Scriptures is an example of this very thing. Some of it, in its essence, isn't as... The consequences aren't as grave. But ultimately, any time that is the approach we take with any Scripture to justify what we want to hear, we're on a path to destruction. You know, people that follow replacement theology, or they'll often say things that, you know, what I believe puts me in good company because so-and-so teaches this, so-and-so taught this, Augustine taught this. So they're regurgitators. They're not people that approach the Scriptures and are taught by the Scriptures. They're regurgitators. They have the idea that because there were great men that God used, then it follows that what these great men said at all times was always right. And so I'm going to believe that, and therefore I'm in good company. Regurgitation. 
There are great men which God used that did foolish things and said things and wrote things that they regretted at different times in their life and had bad doctrine that never got straightened out. Peter said one thing was his mouth and then denied it with his actions down there when he was with Paul and the Jews came down from Jerusalem and Peter went over and sat with the Jews and acted like he didn't want to have anything with the Gentiles to do with them. Paul rebuked him. Does that mean we listen to what Peter had to say in that incident and act like it's great? No, there's a context to everything. We can't be regurgitators. I don't care what so-and-so wrote. Yes, those things may be helpful. They, you know, I like reading biographies and theology books and thing, you know, Spurgeon, guys like that. They didn't claim to be always right. Just like Buddha never claimed to be God, but people worship him. These men who are often quoted that follow this type of doctrine lived in a completely different historical context where we can actually give them a little grace. Jews were scattered all over the world and hadn't been regathered into the land of Israel. We don't have that excuse today. We don't have that excuse for ignorance. But yet we follow people as if they cannot err when the Scriptures say otherwise. Regurgitators. That's what most people are who go to colleges today. Regurgitators. That's an education. If you can regurgitate what you're told, you're educated. Now, it's never been that way in terms of true knowledge and true education. But Paul wasn't like that. In this very book we've been looking at, and I'm going to wrap it up here in a minute, this very book we've been looking at, Galatians, where he mentions the Israel of God, he shows very quickly that he's not a regurgitator and he doesn't have the respect for the other teachers that we would almost think he should have. If you go to chapter 2, he's recalling when he went to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion. He went to Jerusalem and that's when they had this council. Acts chapter 15. Fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And then he explains what happened. And he's in the presence of some pretty important people in the early church. Some pretty respected people. Including James, Peter, and John. He's in their presence. But note how he refers to them. Chapter 2, verse 2, And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles but privately to them which were of reputation. He doesn't even give their names. Well, there are some people down there that had a reputation. So I went and told them these things privately at first, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. So he wanted to make sure, you know, he, he, he met behind closed doors with some people of reputation to make sure there's an accountability essence there. But he refers to them as people of reputation. He doesn't give them names as if they were whatever they said was gospel truth. He viewed it as accountability. And then he talks about, but neither Titus who was with being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us unto bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat important people in the church that were talking about keeping the law, Paul refers to them as these who seem to be somewhat. Augustine, Calvin, Zwingli, 
These who seem to be somewhat. Then he says here, whatsoever they were, it doesn't matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. So these people didn't argue with him. But contrawise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, Peter was missionary to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. So how was Peter the first pope in Rome? When he was a missionary to Jews. That's another example of the Roman church trying to uh, uh, rob the Jewish identity of the New Testament. For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Now look at this. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So even when talking about James, Peter, and John, he refers to them as uh, um, seemed to be pillars, seemed to be leaders. So... What made this true to Paul wasn't because some great men in Jerusalem believed it. It's because what God revealed to him. And at the end of the day, if what God revealed to him was in conflict with what these great men in Jerusalem would believe, then whatsoever they are doesn't matter to me. God accepts no man's person. That's the attitude we ought to have about anybody that teaches. That's the attitude, and I'm not talking in a disrespectful way, but that's the attitude you ought to have about me and my preaching. I don't preach to absolve you of your responsibility to study these things for yourself. Because we all have one teacher, and that's the Holy Spirit. Read the testimonies of men. Read the teachings that, of men that God has used, but everything's got to be interpreted by the Scriptures. We can't cherry pick. Beware replacement theology. Remember Paul said that even if I or an angel from heaven preach another gospel than what you've heard, that meant Paul acknowledged that apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit, even he could fall into that trap. Let him be accursed. So in light of the... This is all right here in Galatians where we have this passage that is claimed to refer to the church. I mean, so you throw the whole rest of the book out. The Israel of God here in Galatians 6 is not the church. The church is made up of Gentiles, as many as walk according to this rule, and it's made up of Jews. That is the Israel of God. Who is the Israel of God? It's what was said about Nathaniel in the book of John when, his, when Philip found him and told him that he had found the Messiah. And when he went to Jesus, Jesus said, Hey, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no God. An Israelite, but an Israelite indeed. He wasn't just the blood of Abraham, he had the faith of Abraham. The Israel of God that is being referred to here, that God, Paul is giving thanks for, is the Jewish remnant of which in this day and age are part of the church that are the blood of Jacob, and they're the faith of Jacob. Where replacement theology. This is ultimately manifested in what happens there on top of Mount Zion in the tribulation. That is the Israel of God. The first fruits of the Israel of God. The 144,000. And they are gathered in victory 
with their Messiah, just like these Marines are gathered in victory here atop Iwo Jima. It's a snapshot. The book of Revelation doesn't reveal every detail about the end of days. It gives us snapshots. Sometimes the narrative progresses chronologically. Sometimes it pauses. There's parentheses. There's snapshots. Why do we think that's so fantastic when that's the way we recap things in everyday life? God is speaking to us in a language we can understand. Revelation can be understood. But this is the fulfillment of that. Mount Zion. There's another passage that's popular amongst replacement theologians, and I want to talk about, a little, talk about it a little bit next time. It's Romans 2, 28 and 29. And I'll close with this. Romans 2, 28 and 29. But, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that uh, is a heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. See, a Jew is not ethnic. Circumcision is of the heart. So because I believe in Jesus, I'm a Jew. We are Jew. We are Israel. That's what was said to me on that Facebook post. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, people look at this, replacement theology looks at this and thinks it's some new doctrine. Some new New Testament development. But it's funny because Paul, if you go study the Old Testament, what Paul is saying here is the exact same thing that Moses twice said to Israel in the Torah. And it's the exact same thing the prophet Jeremiah said to the people of Israel in chapter 4. To Jews, no new teaching whatsoever. See, a lot of what's being preached in the New Testament, the Bible of the New Testament writers was the Old Testament. They believed it was the Scriptures. The first church was Jewish. The first pastors was Jewish. The authors of the New Testament were Jewish. There are Jewish believers that are a part of the church. Always has been. If it weren't for Jewish missionaries, Gentiles would have never heard the Gospel. The Israel of God has always been a part of the church that also involves the spiritual seed of Abraham, the Gentiles. In the tribulation period when the church is gone, Jew and Gentile together, the great mystery, there will be an Israel of God just as there's always been. There was an Israel of God in Elijah's day. 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. There was a very small Israel of God in Isaiah's day. There was an Israel of God that returned to the land when the rest of the ethnic Jews wanted to stay and be comfortable in Babylon because they believed the promises and had the faith of Abraham. There was an Israel of God in the days of Jesus when He was born. There was an Israel of God when Jesus walked the earth with His twelve disciples. There's an Israel of God in the church and there'll be an Israel of God in the tribulation. And all of it will ultimately be fulfilled what James said what happened. After this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David. Messiah is going to come back and rebuild it. What we see in Revelation 14.1 is his, Him standing on the site. Just like these marines atop Mount Suribachi. He's standing on the site. He's standing there with the Israel of God. The first fruits. The 144,000. And on top of those ruins, that temple will be rebuilt. And a kingdom will rise. And there will be fulfillment of the land grant 
and the kingdom and the earthly promises that were made to the fathers. My friends, the Jewish people outside the church may be enemies for the gospel's sake, but they are beloved to the Father because of the election. Beware replacement theology. And praise God there's coming a day when on top of Mount Zion, Messiah will stand with the first fruits of the Israel of God. I know we haven't gotten out of verse 1. I apologize. But these things are sometimes necessary to talk about in the context of the day. I want to look at this Romans 2 passage next time. I'm going to be doing a little teaching about it um, while I'm in South Dakota. There's some very interesting statements that Spurgeon made in his ministry. A lot of replacement theology people were considered reformed and they love to quote Spurgeon left and right. But they conveniently are ignorant of what he said about Israel. Spurgeon lived in a time when there was no modern state of Israel. The land of Palestine was part of the Turkish Muslim Ottoman Empire. And yet Spurgeon understood some clear things from the Bible regarding God's plan and purpose for Israel. So I want to talk about that. I want to define for you some terms we often use. We hear terms like Hebrew, Jew, Israelite, uh, children of Israel, Israeli. You know, what do these terms mean? They're not all completely synonymous. What do these mean in terms of us? And uh, then we'll get into this victory campaign. But if I want to, I, I told Ronnie to get the board out, so I better use it. <laughs> Let's say this represents the church. If we look at Galatians, and I summed it up real simple. If the big circle represents the church in this dispensation, then this represents the Israel of God. These are Gentile Christians who are inheritors of the spiritual blessings of Abraham, the spiritual seed of Abraham. The Israel of God would be Jewish believers who are the children of Israel. That means they are the sons of Jacob who have the faith of Jacob and therefore the faith of Abraham. Um, I'll close with a couple of facts. Today, in the world today, in the land of Israel, we're talking about the modern state of Israel, there are approximately twenty to 30,000 <coughs> Jewish followers of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah in Israel today. Over about 150 congregations in the modern state of Israel. That's the Israel of God in the land of Israel today. Part church will be raptured out with us. Here's what's amazing. According to the Baptist press, look at this. And this really makes that interpretation of Galatians 6 foolish. In 1948, when Israel was declared a nation, there were only 12 followers of Yesh Jewish followers of Yeshua HaMashiach in Israel. 12. In 1987... There were 3,000 Messianics in the land of Israel. In 1997, there were 5,000. And in 2017, there's 20 to 30,000. And you're going to tell me that Israel of God in Galatians 6.16 means Gentile church? Then you, my friend, are the textbook definition of a fool. Get out of your, get, get off, get out of your chair from behind your computer. Get off of Facebook. Go travel a little bit.
Go to Israel and see what God's doing right now amongst His people and tell me that those promises have been replaced. You're a fool. You're willfully ignorant. Some of you are ignorant and need better teaching, but a lot of you that get on Facebook and run your mouth are ignorant, willfully ignorant. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Beware. Beware.